Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, it's an honor to have join us on Make It Plain today. One who is the founder and CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions. She also reports for, we've seen on HBO Real Sports, PBS NewsHour, WebMD, author of numerous books, producer of numerous documentaries. Uh, we first got to really know and love her on CNN, but she has appeared in many places since. Uh, numerous awards, three Emmys, Peabody, a DuPont Prize, uh, a Gracie, and Newsweek Magazine named her one of the 15 people who make America great. Uh, she also is the founder of the Powerful Foundation that helps young women get to and through college. She does that with her husband. And I would add that, of course, she is one of um, the most impactful uh, and influential journalists of our generation. So it is an honor to have with us all make it play. Thank you. What a kind introduction. Thank you. Oh, no, it's all true. Good to see you. Great uh, to see you. First of all, um, COVID, how are you and your family faring in the pandemic? Everybody okay? Thank you for asking. Yes. Thank God. Knock on 
wood. Uh, we've had no drama, no health crises. Um, we've had a couple of friends who've, um, who've uh, gotten very sick. And then some other friends who turned out to be asymptomatic. So they, they had coronavirus, but they would get up and work out, you know, and it was kind of weird to have friends who, I, I, I had friends who, who died uh, at the same time having friends who were completely asymptomatic talking about how they felt kind of crummy but they were going to go to, you know, go work out anyway. And so it's been a very weird um, time, certainly. Uh, but in my own little, you know, family circle, uh, everybody's healthy. Thank you. That's good. Glad, glad to hear that. So on Monday night, folks, Labor Day premiering on uh, worldchannel.org, part of a series, Local USA, again, on worldchannel.org, Soledad has produce is an executive producer of Pandemic in Seattle, which is really a, a poignant documentary. That's where we, in America, we really first heard about the crisis and where it first hit. Is yeah, kind of the ground zero. And, and we were actually, um, had teams in Seattle who were doing a documentary on the homelessness crisis in Seattle when suddenly we had to pivot because COVID made its way to the United States through Seattle. And so we were trying to figure out, well, what should we do? How do we keep doing our story? And we decided that we would look at how communities that are already struggling, that are already in crisis, whether it was elderly people in nursing homes or um, people in the homeless community, how they, you know, what do you do when you're in a crisis and then a crisis hits? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think as we hit the, maybe we're in the middle, maybe we're in the tail end of hopefully of coronavirus, I think we're seeing a similar thing today, right? With evictions and job loss, right? Like when you're in crisis, but there's still a crisis, what happens? I also think we need to measure communities and we need to measure how well we're doing by communities, by how we do by the most vulnerable people in the community. It's not, you know, how's the stock market, but it's how were we able to help people who needed help the most? And unfortunately, I think when it comes to the homeless population, um, again, that crisis, certainly in Seattle and elsewhere, has been so big. How did public health think about how to help homeless people? Uh, how do you shelter in place when you don't have a place? The woman who's the star of our documentary lives in her car with her daughter. You know, how, how does she think about sanitation and staying away from people and, and being clean and washing her hands and... Um, know, staying in her home when she doesn't have a home. Yeah, yeah. Um, Seattle has a large homeless population anyway. But but what I also found interesting, I was looking at the screener, I had the numbers right, 12,000 homeless. But then the another aspect of this documentary um, are those who are living in, I guess, assisted living, mm -hmm. elder care facilities. Right, all the highest risk people, right? Those are the people who are highest risk and also who, who don't really, who have to rely on advocates for mm -hmm. that, that ultimately it's very hard for them to um, necessarily move themselves into housing. It's just not, I mean, the, 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 the issues that they're challenged with, and certainly Stevie and our doc had this, you know, she certainly wanted to get into housing. She certainly was trying to get a job, but a lot of what she relied on was help from advocates to try to move her into housing and move her into a job. And I think in that way, both of those communities, very, very vulnerable and relying on others to advocate for them. 
and, and, and you know, so that, I think that's where they overlap. Um, do we know why Seattle was, was hit so hard and first? Yeah, you know, I think it's a lot of just where uh, the disease came from and, and how it came into the country. Uh, obviously, airplane travel, a lot of European tourists, interestingly, uh, regardless of what the president likes to call this disease as kind of a racist shorthand, um, we know that it was tourists from Europe who first were bringing it into the country. And it's no surprise then that New York, uh, Cal um, uh, San Francisco, right? These are these massive ports that just have so many interchanges of people that it's not a surprise that when you're talking about a global pandemic that they would be the center of it. Um, so yeah, and I think Seattle became very quickly well aware of what was happening, and certainly the nursing homes, I mean, we know now, not just in Seattle, but elsewhere, um, a lot of what they did was wrong in terms of how to protect people, and a lot of their methodology was, they didn't follow the rules. Um, our interest was in, so how does public health help solve this big problem, and what does public health do when they see a train coming down the tracks in Seattle what lessons are learned that the rest of the country could learn and should learn and maybe did learn, but wasn't always implemented. You all had um, a lot of great access hmm. to players in this. I mean, so it's, it's, it's vivid and it's very real. Uh, and that's a Often good thing when you're in the middle of a chaotic situation, it's almost like people don't have the time to think through telling, you no. <laughs> so right, right. I was laughing when you said that I'm like, yeah, because we kind of just popped in and we're like, we want to do this. And everyone was, you know, as long as you stay out of our way, as long as you just stay out of our way, you can shoot. And I think, uh, and we would say, well, we're going to need some access. We're going to need to do these interviews. But really, a lot of it was just following the head of Seattle Public Health around to see what, what um, how she was doing her, her, her job and what were the challenges that she was dealing with and how people who were homeless were dealing with what they were experiencing as it unfolded. Yeah, I was as you. I was watching, and as you were following her around, there were a couple of scenes. I was like, "Do they know there's a camera there?" I mean, do they know they're like. <laughs> so I, I, I can feel you. know people get so comfortable with a camera at some point that, and this has happened forever, forever. As long as I've been doing this, you realize that people get so comfortable that they forget, which is good. I mean, the goal, right, is to be a fly on the wall, to sometimes sit people down and do interviews, but mostly to kind of see their experiences but yeah we've all we've all had that experience in media like hmm do you remember we're recording this right right are there any lessons that are applicable even now as this crisis continues to unfold and is ongoing no telling when it's going to end but are there any lessons from this documentary do you think listen i think that's what seattle did was to shut down the schools they are first in doing that right masking rules first in doing that um making sure you were, you know, social distancing. We didn't hear of social distancing until Seattle really started social distancing in America. Um, but I, I think the thing that really kind of broke my heart was the number of homeless people who would say, and, and some people in nursing homes too, but for homeless people, like until there was a pandemic, your average person really didn't care if I got housing. Until there was a pandemic, your average person didn't care where I was washing my hands or where I was going to the bathroom or did I have enough to eat, right? Until my health could influence directly their health, how I was doing was irrelevant. I was just a person that you kind of walk by on the street. And more than a handful of people said that. And it was really, um, it was really heartbreaking because I'm not sure they were wrong. 
right? I, there, you know, there, there were always arguments about where do you put um, toilets, public toilets. Um, well, you know, those things moved along when there was a global pandemic, which is good, but also, um, you know, could have moved along earlier, certainly. Yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 it should have definitely moved along earlier. And obviously, uh, you mentioned you didn't mention you know who. Um, if this had been addressed and we had been warned about it from the national level, um, a lot of this could have been avoided, couldn't it? Well, I think you only have to look at countries like New Zealand. Um, I think a friend of mine in Taiwan was saying uh, today that his family, you know, that they, they, they go to concerts, they go to bars. He's right. like, it was a shut it down, contain the virus, test, 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 test. Once you figure out where there's a hot spot, you make sure those people are kept away from everybody. It's very hard to do. It's very labor intensive to do. But if you're able to do that, that's how you get rid of it. And I think we did not have the political will because there was um, a lot of interest in using a global and a, a, the, the largest public health crisis in American history, in, in, in recent American history, in the last hundred years, um, to use it as a as a political football or as a you know a bat basically. And so that's and and sometimes I think aided by the media, you know. Um, a lot of people who are not experts when it comes to healthcare and when it comes to public health were elevated, and there's their point of view, you know, given a lot of airtime. Um, and I think that that was hugely problematic and disappointing. So you can look at other nations and say it was done elsewhere. There are people who are going to bars right now, <laughs> you know, who are not wearing a mask, who go to bars, and they have gotten their life back to normal, and their economy is coming back, and people are back in their jobs and back in the shops. Um, it's, it's, it, it exists. Uh, we, we just failed, certainly at the national level, um, you know, massively to, to handle a, a pandemic. We just failed. The, the, the president's leadership was non-existent. You, you read my mind. That was actually my next question because you, you um, from time to time, are, you do offer fearless critiques of our colleagues in media. Um, is the coverage getting any any better um, in terms of how this pandemic is is approached? You know, I don't think so because I think for things to get better, people have to want to do better, right? I think when 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 you look and you say, "Oh my gosh, I have made so many mistakes. I got to do better," but we're missing the part of, "Oh my gosh, I've made so many mistakes." So I. Um, I think it's really, there's no, nothing that would give me any indication that we're going to get better. I think you look at lots of New York Times headlines, they're terrible. Um, they're real. I try to, I try to retweet the ones to show people like where I think the mistakes are in these things. Um, I don't think most members of the media think they failed. I think there is a value in covering an election like a horse race. Um, yeah. and, and I think most members of the media don't feel the stakes. They are not people in poverty. They are not people of color. They are not, you know, their neighborhoods haven't had more people driving through with a Confederate flag as I have in my neighborhood. Their neighborhoods haven't had, uh, you know, they don't feel afraid. They don't have, for the most part, most of them do not have black sons and black husbands and black brothers uh, and black friends. And so I think a lot of this is very um, intellectual and not a 
this is someone's real life. They're not worried for the most part that someone's going to deport their relative. They're not afraid uh, of a hate crime for the most part. I mean, that's just data on who's in the media. So I think it feels very esoteric and intellectual and not real. And, um, and because of that, I think they don't really think about the stakes very much. Um, so that's, you know, that's just where we are. So no, it's a long way of saying, no, no, I don't think so. And don't you think, I mean, for those of us who actually went to school for journalism and you learn how to be objective, you learn how to balance both sides, but it seems sometimes, you mentioned New York Times, one place in particular, um, where there's one side and then they seem to want to help out the other side a little too much rather than <laughs> have the other side appear bare. It's like they want to help clean up the other side a little bit, especially if it's the Trump administration. I do think that they look for a balance and I think there's a mistake in looking for a balance in the way that they do it. I, I think being objective is if we were talking about the weather, right? It wouldn't be Soledad's objective in that she sort of says, well, it could rain, but it could be sunny. You're like, well, I, I need you to just tell me what it is. What's, look out the window, tell me what's the weather, where you are. Um, objectivity is that I don't bring my preconceived notions to the information I'm going to give you. I'm going to tell you truthfully, well, Right now it's sunny, but you know what? I'm looking down there, a lot of gray skies. So I feel confident saying sunny right now, but could be some problems ahead from what I see over there. This idea of like, well, I don't really want to commit to saying one or the other. It, there's, there's, there's truth. I mean, I think at the core of journalism is what is the tr truth and what is the context? Um, you have to frame things that are lies as lies. The media, New York Times is particularly bad at it, just really is reluctant to call something a lie or an untruth. They just really hate to do it. Um, uh, I think that that's problematic. So it, it gives, again, a, you know, a, um, a life to something that's just factually untrue. And I think it gives credibility to someone, the president specifically, who lies chronically but if he's going to say tomorrow, tomorrow I'm mailing out a check to every American for $1 million, the media would report it dutifully versus a person who consistently lies to you has said a thing that seems incredibly unlikely that no one else will verify, right? Like that's contextual. You know, here's what he said, but we need to frame it so you understand how unlikely and most likely it's bull. Um, I think the media likes to just quote things and not give context. And so when you do that, I think you fail in that idea of ultimately you're supposed to educate people and bring them the truth, right? That's the goal is not my opinion, but what is the truth of the circumstance? And that's where I think they're really, they just don't know how to deal with Donald Trump. So they're really failing, unfortunately. to call out a lie, reluctancy to call uh, some <laughs> racist. You I was gonna I say racially tinged, right? <laughs> You and I have a close mutual friend in Eric Bowler, uh, public enemy number one at the New York Times, because he stays on them. Um, and now you even have this thing, Soledad, are we going to have a, a vaccine by November 1st? Right. And There's no credible person in public health who would say yes. There's been no one. And by the way, from the get-go, when you know the process of how you make a vaccine, a year was a stretch. A year was like, 
highly, highly unlikely. And in fact, the Fauci's of the world were saying summer of next year is much more likely. Plus, who gets it first? How would it work? You know, so this idea that um, that everyone's reporting on the thing that is, again, right, the context would tell you no credible people who make vaccines would agree with that. But there's your headline. And, and I wonder, I can't think of any people who, what do you might take that? You know, if you say to people, all right, we got this real quick, a whole lot of folk, and I'm not even talking about folks who are normally anti-vaxxers, because those people are out there, but people who take vaccines be like, hmm. I know, I'm, so you're like, you know what, I'm going to need some other people to try this out first. <laughs> right, 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 some other people. I'll be in the third batch. That's right. Let's That's see right. how the first couple, I mean, I, I do think, I think the problem, again, especially when it comes to public health, is around credibility, and it's something we look at in the doc, right? Like, what happens when you start undermining public health? Um, when you stop thinking about the health of a community, you know, you lose credibility. And when you lose credibility, people get afraid and they don't trust you. They just stop believing the government. It's a really, I think that's a, that's a really big problem. Um, and also, um, one specific place where there was ground zero in Seattle uh, was the, the Kirkland Life Care mm-hmm. Center. And you follow a family directly affected by that. And a lot of people will be able to relate to that because those who have had elderly loved ones and needing to remain separated from them during this crisis, I mean, that was very real too in the document. Yeah, I think that was part of the challenge for her, right? I mean, as we're talking about like this not believing what someone's telling you, there were many mistakes made at that at that center. Many, many. You know, at some point you start to chip away at your credibility um, if you're not doing the right thing consistently. So. Yeah, again, I I do feel we're judged in history by how do we do for the people who rely on us for their care? You know, today we're seeing evictions. Today we're seeing people who are hungry um, because of coronavirus. I think we're going to be judged very poorly um, because I don't think we are being good stewards for the people who need someone to advocate for them. Yeah. Folks, uh, Pandemic Seattle premiering on Labor Day, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, worldchannel.org, part of the series Local USA. Uh, I know you got a lot going on. What's next? What's the next production? Oh, my gosh. We have another great doc that's about to air uh, probably next month that looks at um, hunger on college campuses a problem that's only going to get worse in the wake of coronavirus, as I think the students who are already on the margin have just been devastated by, you know, moving to online, where do they go, who do they, you know, it just, like, for those of us who are able to move our kids back home or move our kids into their apartment anyway, even if their schools decided to not start for a bit, you know, for students who are counting every dime, it's a big challenge. So we're looking at that. And then we just have a lot of projects getting going that are going to examine race and, um, race in America and kind of a we I think it's a kind of an iteration of what we did at CNN maybe what was that 12 years ago we did a series called black in America and we're going to start looking at um, the American experience kind of writ large uh, how many things that African Americans are written out of how many times the the stories of the point of view of people of color just don't you know get reflected Uh, we thought this would be a good time to revisit that well that'd be great Lord knows we need that now 
in this moment of reckoning. So right. we look forward to that. Soledad O'Brien, again, folks, worldchannel.org, Monday, Labor Day, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Check it out. Such a pleasure to see you again. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. Nice to see you. Take care. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.